You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. So we now come to Psalm 24 as we've been making our way through the book of Psalms. Uh, this wonderful psalm that acts as a small culmination of these kingship psalms uh, that we've seen in uh, that we've seen in this section of the psalms. So, starting at uh, verse one of Psalm twenty-four, a psalm of David: The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof; the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Well, as we've uh, just read Psalm 24, uh, and if you're looking at it uh, in your service sheets there, you'll note the, the three sections uh, that we're dividing it into, uh, verses 1 and 2, 3 through 6, and 7 through 10. And even as you're hearing it being read, you can probably uh, hear the way it, it, it sounds a bit disjointed, right? Verses 1 and 2 speak of creation and how God owns all things. But then it, it transitions to verses 3 through 6, which speak of, of, of this question, who may ascend to God's holy hill, hill, holy hill? Basically, who may come into God's presence? And then it concludes with verses 7 through 10, where it, it sounds as if you've got this great procession coming, and the Lord of glory is in their midst as they're, they're coming into, into some place. And so some scholars actually believe that the psalm is made up of, of one or two different psalms, or two or three different psalms that have been sort of sandwiched together here. But I think as we come to it tonight, certainly viewing it as inspired by God, I think there is a unity that we can see that is, is binding this psalm together. And I think that, that, that glue that's holding this together is this idea of the temple or the tabernacle. And you'll remember, this is the place where God would dwell with and meet with his people. And so we'll explore that in the ways in which I think the temple is the, is the key that's binding this whole psalm together. And I think one more thing that we can note about this psalm is it is it's speaking about God's rule of creation, God's holiness and splendor, and God's victory and might. That if there's a historical situation that the psalm uh, lends itself to, it could be uh, the time in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where the ark is being moved into Jerusalem is if you read the account of that, it's this joyful procession. Uh, it's this time of joy. God has established his king, David, over his people. He's brought peace on all sides. And David is now taking and moving the ark as well to Jerusalem, where eventually his son Solomon will establish the temple. 
And if you read that account, it seems actually quite easy to imagine the people there chanting and, and singing this psalm of David. Lift up your heads, O gates. And then who is the king of glory? The Lord is the king of glory. And so it's possible that this could either be uh, written by David for this time of bringing the ark in or written afterwards reflecting upon this. But as we'll see throughout uh, this text, I think there's even more to it. That the Holy Spirit working through David, helping him to, to compose this psalm, was looking forward to an even greater victory and an even greater uh, Lord entering his holy temple. And so as we look at this this evening, uh, again, we'll look at it through the, the ways in which it's broken up in the service sheet here. It starts off speaking of all of creation. Uh, verses 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Basically, the, the psalmist David is writing that the Lord owns the earth to its furthest extent. The world and then those who dwell therein. All of this is hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. as God has created all things and he's created all creatures including man. And he puts man in this garden to dwell with him where God would walk with Adam. And so the psalmist just reiterates a, a very common theme that the Israelites should have known, that faithful Israelites should have known, is that, that God rules everything because he's created all things, and so he owns everything. But then David continues, well, why does, does God own all of these things? And verse 2 begins with for, or you could translate it as because. Because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, you remember the beginning where the earth is formless and void and the Spirit is hovering on it. These waters, there's nothing habitable for man and for his creatures. And suddenly, out of the water, out of this waters, it seems, of chaos and darkness, God brings light and life. And suddenly, order is brought to creation that it is suitable and habitable, and man is now able to dwell in it as well as all of the creatures that God has created. So he has founded it or he has established it on, upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. And again, you can think of the ways in which right, the, the seas would have been here and then the land is pictured as if it's coming up out of the, the waters there. And then you would have had the rivers then cutting across the land as God has formed the world and making it habitable. And right in the center of it all, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, man cre God creates man and sets him in the middle of this. He, he places him in Eden, in this garden. Right, And as we, we look through the, the rest of Scripture, this imagery of Eden comes back. And we see it most clearly in the way in which the, the temple is built in order to remind the people, uh, in one instance, to remind them to go backwards to Eden. Uh, the temple is pictured as the, the earth, the heavens, and then the holy of holies, the, the heavenly throne room. And so the, the temple there, or the tabernacle, would have been a, a, a symbol to remind the people of Eden, of, of drawing them back to God's good creation and the way it was originally created. But remember the other function of the temple, as we'll see in the second part of this text. The other part of the temple was to remind them of why they no longer dwell in Eden. 
Right? We know the story. Man and woman, they sinned and they were cast out of the garden. And actually, then the temple was structured in such a way to remind the people of that as well. Right? We know there's the, if you know the, the way in which the temple was built, there's a giant rectangle, the outer court, and then there's a smaller rectangle with the inner court and then the Holy of Holies. And even you children should know that if you were to enter the Holy of Holies, you wouldn't last very long, would you? To walk into the Holy of Holies uninvited would have brought certain death. So the temple there stood as a, as a symbol, as a sign that Israel was cast out of God's presence. And only through the sacrifices, only of being made holy, would they be allowed to dwell with God again. And so we, again, we get this theme of, of moving from creation in general to God calling a people to himself. And, right, and then he establishes the tabernacle and the temple as a sign of his presence with his people. And so then look at verse 3 as we move to, to verses 3 through 6, which has this hill of the Lord, this holy place, which is just another synonym for the temple or the tabernacle used in the Old Testament. That who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place. Right, verse 3 just, just highlights God's holiness, right? God's set-apartness. And again, the, the temple would have demonstrated that quite clearly to them. They would have been barred access to certain places. And so now, especially if this is uh, when David is moving the ark to Jerusalem, uh, eventually on Mount Zion, which would be a, a um, it is a small hill in Jerusalem. And it's this picture there for the people of God to know that God is, is dwelling there in their midst. And they are then to be holy because a holy God is with them. And that we see as, as David draws out here, who may dwell in the presence of the Lord, well, verses 3 through 4, or sorry, verses uh, 4 here, those who have clean hands and a pure heart, clean hands and a pure heart. Really, uh, what we're seeing here is the, the internal and the external the ways in which they're to have clean hands, right? I'm sure, again, children, you've been outside, you've played in the mud, you've gotten wet, you've gotten dirty. I see some of you actually smiling. You probably, some of you probably like getting dirty and muddy and mucky. It's, it can be kind of fun. I actually don't really like it. I prefer to be clean. But right, you have to come inside. You have to then wash your hands before you eat. No one's going to let you just sit there at the dinner table with hands covered in mud, right? And so here, David is speaking of those who have clean hands, meaning those who have not done things that have been disobedient to God. That those who have, have done the things that God has commanded them to do and not done the things God has prohibited them to do. But he also speaks of a clean heart. And again, as we come back, that the, the heart is kind of the, the central point, the, the ways in which we, we have our, our thoughts, our feelings, our will. And God speaks of that being clean as well, having a pure heart. So to, to be clean externally and clean internally, to be holy. And then that works itself out. David brings up two negative examples. He says, those who do not lift up their, his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And again, we seem to have a, an internal and an external way of looking at the sins here. The, the, the lifting up his soul to what is false is idolatry. This is a person who's worshiping something other than God. And then from that, they're speaking lies. 
They're speaking lies. And actually, as we, we saw when we were looking at the life of, of Stephen, right, these, these men who were uh, supposed to be faithful Jews were ones who had not, who had unclean hands. Their hands were full of violence. They murdered. They were those who swore deceitfully, twisting the truth in order to have Stephen killed. They were those who were worshiping idols and were becoming like them. All right, that's the, the great truth that Scripture speaks of. Basically, Scripture boils it down to what you worship, you will become like. It's good news and bad news. All right, if we worship a holy God, the, the Scriptures tell us we will become holy like Him. But it also speaks of the way in which we worship idols, we become like them. That idols, what are they? They're little golden statues, right? They're dead inside. And Scripture speaks about the fact that if you worship them, you become dead inside as well. And then from that deadness comes pouring forth all of these evil things. Right? And again, we can think of Stephen. Right? Stephen, who was pure in heart, who had clean hands, versus those who had idols. Their soul was lifted up to what was false. They swore deceitfully. And interesting, actually, going back to the life of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where does the life of Stephen end? The life of Stephen ends with Stephen entering glory into the very throne room of God, with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ standing at his right side. Stephen sees the heavens opened. It sounds an awful lot like the second, the third part of our psalm here. Well, finally, David also speaks of this great blessing of fellowship in verses 5 through 6. Uh, at verse 5, you see salvation. Just succinctly said, he receives blessing from God and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Right? Lest we, we read this and think, well, I need to clean myself up. I need to work harder to make myself holy so that God will love me. David, who knows firsthand what it is to experience grace and forgiveness. He speaks of, of those who trust in the Lord will find their righteousness, righteousness from God. A very Paul-like sentiment uh, for David to be expressing here. The God of his salvation. Many of the Psalms speak of David proclaiming that God is a God of salvation, not just to Israel, but to him personally, that God has saved him time and again from death. And here, a blessing comes from the Lord, righteousness. And we've, again, have been seeing this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this great blessing that comes from God. And then verse 6, he speaks of these covenant blessings, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Or you could translate it, uh, you'll even note there's a, in the ESV, if you have a, an actual Bible in front of you, there's a, there's a footnote here. Uh, because the word of is supplied. The word of is not there in the Hebrew. So it could be that it's speaking about the people who are identified as Jacob. Right? David is here. He's speaking about faithful Israelites. Right? Again, we, we have this movement from people in general to then people who are called out of this world to be God's people. But even in the midst of that, 
Right? We know that it is made up, even, even the church we know is, is made up of those who are true believers and those who are not. Even Israel was made up of, of true Israelites who had faith and then many who didn't. And so David here is calling uh, those Israelites to be faithful and pure and to have true faith, right? to trust, right? to look at the temple, to look at the tabernacle, to look through it to see God, to look at all the animal sacrifices, to see their sin and to see redemption in Jesus Christ. Right? The, the, what distinguishes right, true believers from hypocrites? What distinguishes the two of them? Because on the outside, they both can look very similar. But they, on the inside, we even see from this psalm, there's a, there's a faith, there's a seeking, right? Such are those who seek God, who seek his face. There's a, a loving of righteousness and a loving of holiness. There's a, a wholehearted trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and our righteousness, Right? And that's something that only a, a hypocrite can pretend to have. Well, again, I think looking at verses 3 through 6, we can see this idea of a holy place. Right? There is this holy place, this holy hill where the Lord dwells in his holiness. And David rightly is asking, who has the right to approach him? I mean, you could just think about uh, if you were to go to Buckingham Palace, right? And the queen were, you knew was there at Buckingham Palace. I think most of us probably wouldn't try to run past the guards and run through the house to try to get to the queen. Now, I could be wrong. Some of you may try to do that. You're not going to get very far. But we just know that she is sort of different by being the queen. We probably shouldn't do that. And David says, well, this is even greater. Because remember, David's the king. David's the king who is writing this, and, and he is, is asking this question, who has the right to dwell with God? And David himself knows that he actually isn't worthy to be in God's presence, if it were just on his own merit. And so the, the temple, it showed forth, right? It showed forth the separation, but it also showed forth the ways in which men and women could dwell with God. Through the sacrifices, it offered, it offered hope. It offered hope to them that the sacrifices were confirming for them an inward reality of their salvation. And think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, then we switch over, as it were, uh, to verses 7 through 10 where I'm calling it God's heavenly temple. There's something greater that's now happening here from approaching the presence of God uh, now to verses 7 through 10, where there's this, this great procession that seems to have God at the, the forefront of it. And the people calling out uh, to have these gates and these ancient doors open because the king of glory, the glorious king, has come. And where is he going in this? I think here he's going to his, his heavenly throne room, the way in which the, the great uh, temple that everything else is a mere model of. And so the, the earthly temple is just a model of a heavenly temple. There really is a throne room that is glorious where God sits and rules all he dispatches angels from. 
to do his bidding. There's this great throne room. And here it's this picture of God who is strong and mighty, mighty in battle, who is coming back from a great victory and marching with this great procession behind him. And you can, again, you can hear the way in which this procession is calling out, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory is coming. It's almost as if there's a, there's a series of guards or doorkeepers there going, well, who is this king of glory? And the crowd responds, Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. And then they, they, they chant again, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory, they respond. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the heavenly armies, is the king of glory. And it ends there. We're never quite sure, did, did the Lord end up entering through these gates? Well, in the time of David, he did move the ark into Jerusalem, and eventually the temple would be built and constructed there to house the ark. John Calvin noted, and I thought was, was quite uh, astute, that David here appears to be looking forward to the temple because the tabernacle was a tent. Uh, it would have just had cloth uh, doors around it. But here, speaking of gates, gates and ancient doors, David seems to have this prophetic view of the temple and God dwelling in the midst in a much more permanent fashion. But as we, we look at this, this great and mighty victory, right? I think that the, the, when we look at, at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and the fact that God had given peace on all sides and, and David now is moving the, the ark in to Jerusalem so where the king and the king would dwell with his people, that we know the rest of the story, that this is far too small of a victory for so much clamor and so much joy. That the victory that was won there by God through David was only a small piece of the world. Actually, by modern standards, I mean, Israel is quite a small country, isn't it? And so there's this one king ruling over this small area. Whereas if you, you continue through the rest of the New Test, uh, Old Testament, and especially as you get through Isaiah, and, you, and even, even in the Psalms, like Psalm 72, speak of the king who would rule all of the earth. That the king is coming, that the king has won this great victory, and now he is entering into his rest, victorious over all of his enemies. Well, if you think about that, thinking of it in those words, it seems quite clearly to me that, so, that, that verses 7 through 10 are, are speaking of a, a greater victory accomplished by a greater son. And again, it's the Sunday school answer. Who are we speaking of here? Well, we're speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who as he, he dies upon the cross, he accomplishes this great victory and he rises again on the third day. He has beaten back uh, the devil, uh, sin, and all of these, these forces of darkness. And then it speaks of him ascending into heaven to take his seat at, his, at the Father's right hand. Paul actually cites Psalm 68 in Ephesians where he says, Jesus, he ascended on high, led a host of captives, and gave gifts to men. 
And who is the king of glory coming in? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, that after accomplishing this mighty victory, the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven and takes his seat upon the throne. And so as we we bring all of these strands together, I think we can see how this psalm is a unit, is one psalm, right? It, It speaks of God who rules over everything, God who establishes this perfect world, who plants man in the center of it. And again, think of the wording that it uses. What does it call, what does it describe man and woman as? God has made them in his image. It's the same word for idol. They were to reflect God's glory there on earth. But through their sin, they they separated themselves from God. They were cast out of the garden. They were then sinners. Well, then God establishes and calls these people and establishes this temple, this tabernacle, in order to, to help them to worship him and to be in his presence. But all of that, the, the temple, the tabernacle, all of it was, was moving to an even greater time that was coming. That when the Lord Jesus would come, that he would then save us and usher us and bring us into a new world. But Paul, again, in Ephesians, he speaks of it this way, not of, of a future reality that we look towards that. Paul speaks of a present reality. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And, and here he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And again, I don't think I can fully understand the full extent of what Paul is saying there, but but being united to Jesus Christ means we're united to his victory and his reigning in heaven right now. And you think of uh, of this procession following behind uh, the king who is coming in. Right? In Jesus Christ, right? we are this procession who is proclaiming that Jesus is the king of glory. That Jesus is the one mighty in battle, the one who is strong and mighty, the one who is the commander of the heavenly armies. And think of Jesus' ministry, that through Jesus Christ, he says, now you can actually approach God's throne room, that you can come into his presence because of what he's done for you. That in Jesus Christ, not only do we have salvation, but we have kingship. We rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul says. He says, do you not know that you will judge angels? They don't have even a moment to get into what that means. But Paul is is trying to help us understand all that we have in Jesus Christ. That that in Jesus Christ, we don't just have hope of heaven. That the Bible is clear that it's moving towards something greater that it's moving to something greater than even where it started. That even Eden is going to pale in comparison. Even the, the temple and the tabernacle are all going to pale in comparison. That in Revelation, this new city that's structured like a temple but has no need of a temple because the Lord Jesus is in its midst. That there's no longer any mediation needed. That once again, man and God can dwell together. All right, and so as we we come to the end 
of this psalm. It reminds us of creation, of recreation, and also consummation. It's to be a a psalm that gives us hope to resound like a battle cry in the darkness of this world. And as we close, right, we can think of what this psalm asks, who is this king of glory? Jesus Christ, the strong man, the stronger one, the one who's strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Jesus Christ, the captain of the heavenly armies. He is the king of glory. Amen. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. Thank you.